0: and there it says in the ninth year in the ten months on the tenth day the word of the Lord came to me son of man record this date this very date because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day tell this rebellious house a parable and say to them this is what the sovereign Lord says put on the cooking pot put it on and pour water into it put into it the pieces of meat All the choice pieces, the leg and the shoulder. Fill it with the best of the bones. Take the pick of the flock. Pile wood beneath it for the bones. Bring it to a boil and cook the bones in it. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed, to to the pot now encrusted, whose deposit will not go away. Empty it piece by piece without casting lots for them. For the blood she shed is in her midst, she poured it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground where the dust would have covered it. To stir up wrath and take revenge I put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I too will pile the wood high. So heap on the wood and kindle the fire. Cook the meat well. Mix in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coals till it becomes hot and its copper glows so its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. Now your impurity is lewdness because I tried to cleanse you but you would not be cleansed from your impurity. You will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided." I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not hold back. I will not have pity, nor will I relent. You will be judged according to your conduct and your actions, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, with one blow I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fasted and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I had been commanded. Then the people asked me, won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? So I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword and you will do as I have done. You will not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. You will keep your turbans on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You will not mourn or weep but will waste away because of your sins and groan among yourselves. Ezekiel will be assigned to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. And you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire and their sons and daughters as well. On that day, a fugitive will come to tell you the news. At that time, your mouth will be opened. You will speak with him and will no longer be silent. So you will be assigned to them. And they will know that I am the Lord. Thanks, Carl
1: Well, uh, in the last few uh, few months, I've had uh, a number of people over uh, visiting, and uh, there's been a, a constant refrain uh, when people come over. Uh, it's slightly embarrassing. Uh, and they say, "Oh, your place is quite neat, isn't it?" <laughs> and uh, and I'm always, I'm oh, sorry about the books. I haven't uh, had a chance to tidy up properly," which is a lie because I have. I've just been, you know, running around the house with the duster and uh, everything. But I, I'm, a, I'm a neat person, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit too neat. Uh, and and one of the things that really frustrates me, and maybe it frustrates you as well, maybe it doesn't, uh, is a dirty pot. You know, uh, you, you get a little bit overzealous perhaps once uh, cooking and uh, you turn the heat up a little bit too high and things get charred on or you leave it on the stove for a little bit too long uh, and things get encrusted onto the pot. Uh, and, and it's so frustrating because as hard as you scrub, you can't get it off. And it's worse with those stupid non-stick saucepans, you know, where you can't use anything but, but like a, you know, an ear cleaner or something like that. You know, just... <laughs> Just gently scrape the outside, and uh, uh, you know, so you can't get anything off. Uh, I have, I have this enamel, uh, this it's uh, this cast iron casserole dish, yeah. And the enamel on it is just browning. You know, no matter what I do, it just just keeps getting brown. There's, scr- there's scratches, my teacups, uh, you know, do you know how they do that, that brown stain uh, on them? Actually, I've discovered uh, denture tablets. Yeah. So that was, that was a bit of a, that was interesting, going to Woolworths and coming up with denture, denture tablets. Uh, at the checkout, it's for the teacups. Uh, but anyway, but, uh, but it is, isn't it? It's so frustrating when you have something that you really care about, something that is, is, is really useful, uh, really dear to your heart uh, and you can't get it clean, you know? It just becomes encrusted uh, with this filth. And and that is exactly the illustration that God is using uh, here in this passage, Ezekiel 24, about uh, the city of Jerusalem in the days of Ezekiel. Uh, It's like a pot encrusted with filth. Uh, The setting for this chapter is the day that Jerusalem was finally attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. So it's the tenth day of the tenth month of the ninth year, the ninth year of the reign of King Zedekiah and Jerusalem is being besieged. Uh, It was five years into Ezekiel's ministry, five years since chapter one and finally what he had been saying was going to happen for all those five years, finally it's happened and Nebuchadnezzar has attacked Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is hundreds of miles away, he's in Babylon but God comes to him and says, look, right down this day, because uh, at this very moment, even though it's hundreds of miles away, at this very moment uh, Jerusalem is being attacked right down the day so that when the news finally comes through, through the human messengers, people will know that I have been speaking to you all this time, speaking through you this entire time. The destruction that God was bringing on his people is described in terms of this parable uh, where Jerusalem is the pot uh, and the people inside it are the meat. The meat inside it are the people, I should say. So in verse 3 to 5, put on the cooking pot. Put it on and pour water into it. Put into it the pieces of meat, all the choice pieces, the leg and the shoulder. Fill it with the best of the bones. Take the pick of the flock. Pile wood beneath it for the bones. Bring it to the boil and cook the bones in it. It sounds at first uh, like one of Ed's men's dinners. You know, it's all the best stuff, isn't it? Uh, It sounds like this gourmet meal is being set uh, by God. And yet, it only takes a moment to realise that actually that's not what is going on at all. Uh, Israel is like this uh, choice stew full of the best meat and yet in verses 6 to 9, God goes on to say this, Woe to the city full of bloodshed, to the pot now encrusted whose deposit will not go away. Empty it piece by piece without casting lots for them for the blood she shed in her midst. She poured it out on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground where the dust would cover it. To stir up wrath and take revenge I put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. So Jerusalem is is like this, this pot of rotten meat. And all their filth has stuck to the pot of God's city, Jerusalem. The idea is uh, is not just that Jerusalem is a city full of murderers, so woe to you, city full of bloodshed. It's not just that Jerusalem was full of murderers, but it was a city full of oppression uh, uh, and full of sin. Back in chapter 22, in verse 7, God expands on what it means to be a city full of bloodshed. And he says this, In you they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you they have oppressed the alien and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. God goes on to mention uh, making idols, lewd acts, a multitude of violations of God's design for sex, bribery, unjust gain and so on. But what's worse is not just that they've engaged in all those kinds of things. What's worse is that they've done them with abandon. They've done them publicly without any kind of shame. They poured out blood on bare rock. That is, they just just let their sin be shown for what it is rather than pouring it out in the dirt and kind of covering it up and seeking to, to hide what they were doing. Do you remember back in, was it chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 8, there was all those idols set up in the temple of God and everyone could see it and nobody batted an eye. Well, that's what the people were doing. They were doing their sin out in the open and they were proud of it. It's kind of interesting actually to reflect on that in terms of our society, the society that we live in. In some ways it seems that the great change in our society over the last 50 years, say, is not so much that uh, the kinds of sin that people are involved in has changed. You know, I think people are doing the same things now that they've always been doing. You read through the Bible, it's exactly the same, the world's the same as it's always been. But maybe the difference is, is that what used to be done in secret is now done in public. What used to be hidden is now exposed. And people... Don't just do this, but they're proud of it. Maybe in a way that was that it wasn't like that before. It's considered a mark of our cultural sophistication that we accept easy divorce, sexual liberation, abortion. Those things are marks of our cultural sophistication. It's not just that those are new ideas. People have been killing babies for centuries. What's new is the public nature. And what's true of our society is also true of the church. We find it a mark of our theological and moral sophistication that we can engage in any sin and voyeuristically watch on any sin as long as it doesn't affect us. So we might play computer games that we mercilessly slaughter other human beings but as long as it's not affecting us, it doesn't matter. We can watch all kinds of immorality on television and derive our pleasure and our joy from watching people do all kinds of horrible things that God hates but as long as it doesn't affect us, it doesn't matter. We enjoy watching sin being flaunted And the most shocking thing is not that we do that, but that we do it so openly. We denounce anyone who suggests that that's not true, that we should set our minds on what's pure and right and and good. We pour out our bloodshed on the rocks for everyone to see. What's maybe even more interesting about the people in Ezekiel's day is that it wasn't simply that they as people were unclean but actually the city was unclean. So because of their uncleanness the city itself became unclean and encrusted with their filth. Their filth affected their world and their environment. There's a long history in Israel of uncleanness being spread from people to things. So in Leviticus, you might remember from Leviticus that an unclean person, their uncleanness could be spread to their clothes. Uncleanness could affect pots and jars. Uncleanness could affect houses. And uncleanness could even affect God's house, the temple. And In fact, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would enact a, a complicated ritual to, to symbolise the removal of uncleanness, not just from the people, but from the people's world as well. Why is that important? It's important because it reminds us that our sin not only affects us, our sin not only affects other people, but our sin affects our world, the world that God has created for us to live in. To see that, we only need to uh, suppose that every single human being in the world was taken out of it. Imagine if all of us, every human being, was taken out of the world. The effects of sin, the effects of sin would still be there. Animals would still kill and maim each other there'd still be disease, They'd, things would still die, species would die out, the sun would continue to decay. And what physicists call the arrow of time would march on. I don't know if you've ever heard of entropy. Entropy is the, uh, it's a, something that physicists love to talk about but it basically means that the world is becoming a more and more disordered place in terms of energy. Anyway, it's not important. But the point is that physicists have a, have a quantifier for the fact that the world is becoming less and less ordered. The arrow of time marches on because of our sin. Because we've defiled the world that God created for us to live in. You see, the pot encrusted with filth that God was talking about is not just Jerusalem and the people in it then, but the pot encrusted with filth is actually us in God's world now as well. God's good world has been defiled by us and our sinful humanity. So what would the result of that be for those defiled people and those crusted on stains? Well, verses 9 to 12 go on to spell out the implications for the people in the city. God says, Woe to the city of bloodshed! I too will pile the wood high, so heap on the wood and kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mixing in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coal till it becomes hot, and its copper glows so its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed even by fire. So in response to the grotesque distortions of the people, God says it is going to burn the city to ashes. I don't know if you've seen some of those ovens, that, the new ovens that you get these days with pyrolytic cleaning functions. Um, does, anyone know, does anyone have one of those ovens with the pyrolytic cleaners? Yeah. So what happens is that the oven superheats. It heats up to something like 500 degrees or something and any food kind of stuff, kind of stuck on the side of the oven, is turned to ash and then you can sweep it up and throw it away. Now my mum decided, someone told her, no, you don't need that. Just get rid of the old school ovens, it'll be fine. And it's, it's so hard to clean. you know. And you can't, of course it's another one of those ones where you can't use anything but the mildest detergent. And you can't get it clean, but these pyrolytic cleaners are designed to, to, to do away with that problem by, by burning everything to smithereens. And that's what God is saying that he's going to do to the people of Israel. His, that is what he's going to do to Jerusalem. He's going to stoke the fire until it's so hot that the the meat and the food inside is burned to a char. He's going to utterly destroy the people in the city, the people who have defiled the city. And then he's going to leave that pot, the pot of the city, still on the heat until it glows red hot and all the filth and all the muck from the rotten people is destroyed as well. And in so doing, God will cleanse the city of all its filth. In verse 12, God says that actually he'd already tried to cleanse the city before. He tried to cleanse it with fire, but it hadn't worked. Verse 12, it has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, even by fire. And then in verse 13, he explains that a bit. Now your impurity is lewdness because I tried to cleanse you, but you would not be cleansed from your impurity. You will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided. I think uh, that verse, verse 13, has to be one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. It's a big claim and probably it's a little bit too dramatic. But anyway, but, but it, is, it is a very, it's certainly a, substantial verse, a key verse in the book of Ezekiel because this is the low point. This is where the, the promised judgement is now taking place and from here on in things uh, get better. God begins to reveal the, how he is going to remedy this situation. But this verse also explains the inadequacy of the state of affairs in the Old Testament. Uh, so if you were to summarise uh, at least part of the message of the Old Testament, it would be this that the discipline and the training from God, that discipline and training from God is inadequate to enable us to know God and to live with God. Discipline and training from God is inadequate to enable us to know God and live with God. So you could summarise the pattern of the Old Testament like this. The The people sinned, God disciplined them. The people sinned, God disciplined them. The people sinned, God disciplined them. The people sinned, God disciplined them again and the people sinned again. See, the problem was that the discipline of God didn't fundamentally change what the people were like. They were still sinful people. No amount of discipline that you or I can experience can ever change the kind of people that we are. So you might look at your life and marvel at the kinds of uh, changes that you've been able to make in your life, Uh, Perhaps you used to struggle uh, with racism, but not anymore. Perhaps you experienced uh, a, a very difficult time in your life and that made you more understanding of other people, of other people who suffered. Fantastic. That's great. But it's inadequate as well. God says that's not enough. Because at the end of the day you're still the same person corrupted by the same kinds of sin. Those those same sins are still buried deep inside your heart. No, we need more than discipline. We need to be made new creatures. You might say, but what about those places like in, uh, in Hebrews 12? In Hebrews 12 God says, endure discipline as training, endure hardship as God's training. And that's true that God does discipline us to train us. But that's after we've been made new creations. The discipline of God can't change us from being old people to new people. Only the new creation work in Jesus Christ can do that. Discipline without new birth leads nowhere. God tried to cleanse the people. He tried to cleanse the Old Testament people even through harsh discipline. But it didn't make old people new. But secondly, God's saying something else here uh, as well. What God was saying to the people uh, also was that there can be no cleansing without propitiation. I hate to use that word again. But it's just such a useful word. It's an annoying large word which means make God favourable again, deal with God's wrath. There can be no cleansing without God's wrath being satisfied, God's justice being dealt with. God says, I would have cleansed you if it was possible, but it's not possible. And so I won't cleanse you again until my wrath against you has subsided. How is that wrath manifested in Ezekiel's day, it was manifested in exile and death. And more importantly, that wrath was manifested in the destruction of the temple, in the destruction of God's house, the house that he'd given as a gift to his people. The second half of uh, of this chapter goes on to speak about that, how God's wrath is played out against the defiled city. So verse 21 Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am about to desecrate my sanctuary, the stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The city and the people couldn't be cleansed. What's the only way to deal with it? To destroy it, to even destroy God's own city. Not just the delight of their eyes, but the delight of God's eyes as well. So the first two points then uh, really are that the vision uh, of our uh, are that vision of our simple corruption uh, and our corruption of God's world that's the first thing and the second thing is the impossibility of cleansing that without everything being utterly and totally destroyed. What I want to do now is to take a slightly different tack and to move to the Gospel of John and what I want to try and show you is how in John's Gospel Jesus is cast as the solution to that impossible cleansing uh, in Ezekiel chapter 24. So, tr- travel with me to uh, the New Testament to the fourth Gospel, to the Gospel of John and I just want to do a flying overview of uh, A few chapters there. And I just want us to see, I mean we know that the answer is Jesus, right? But what I want you to see is how we can know that that's the case and how John wants us to know that Jesus is the answer uh, to this Old Testament predicament. Uh, So John chapter 2. So the first uh, section you might see there in John chapter 2 is about Jesus changing the water into wine. Uh, The water that he turns into wine comes from six stone jars. Those uh, stone jars, what were they used for? Verse 6 says they were for ceremonial washing. But Jesus turns their water into wine for, for a celebration. The point being at least is that those jars have reached their use by date. There's no need anymore for those jars of ceremonial washing. All that's needed is the wine for the celebration of the coming of the Messiah. In the second part of chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple. He clears the temple symbolising the judgement which is going to come on the temple. The judgement which will come not only on the physical temple but on Jesus himself as the new temple. So look at verse 19. Jesus says to the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. The Jews didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They thought he was talking about the the actual physical temple which had taken 46 years to build. So John explains in verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken So in Ezekiel's day, God took away the delight of the people's eyes in order to deal with God's justice against their sin. But in John's day, God was not going to take away just the physical temple, the delight of their eyes. God was going to take away the delight of his eyes, his son Jesus, in order to deal with his justice against their sin. And not only will Jesus bring an end to the ineffectual cleansing of the Old Testament, he will bring an end to the temple. And God's wrath will be poured out on him before the new temple will be reconstructed in him. So Jesus is himself the end of that old creation encrusted with filth, and Jesus is the beginning of a new creation free from the filth, free from the filth encrusted onto the old pot. In, uh, in chapter 3 Jesus meets Nicodemus who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven but Jesus tells him that he can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again of water and spirit. That's a reference to Ezekiel, 13, uh, Ezekiel 36 where God promises that he will uh, cleanse the people in the way that the old covenant was unable to do. So verse 5, I tell you the truth. Verse 5 of chapter 3, I tell you the truth No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. That is, people keep giving birth to the same old corrupted kinds of people, people mired in sin, but the Spirit gives birth to new people. And in what is that cleansing work anchored? Verse 14 Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus being lifted up is a reference to his crucifixion, a reference to him being lifted up on the cross and uh, quenching the wrath of God against us and opening up a way for us to be made new through the Spirit of Christ in us. After that, uh, a dispute breaks out In the next section of of John chapter 3 a dispute breaks out about the baptism of John, uh, John the Baptist and ceremonial washing. So if you look at chapter 3 and verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing, ceremonial washing again. What was John the Baptist's answer? Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God's, For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. John is basically saying, guys, it's not about ceremonial washing anymore. It's about the cleansing which comes through the Spirit of God. Whoever believes in the Son, he says, has life. But whoever doesn't believe, notice what it says, whoever doesn't believe will not see God for God's wrath remains on him. Though Jesus takes away that wrath that was necessary to be taken away so that the new cleansing work that Ezekiel foreshadowed could take place. God says, I tried to cleanse you but I couldn't cleanse you and you will not be clean again until my wrath against you subsides. Then in the beginning of chapter 4 Jesus meets the Samaritan woman and what do they talk about? They talk about the temple. Jesus tells uh, the woman that they'll no longer worship uh, at the temple on that mountain or on this mountain. Instead, verse 24, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is talking about a new temple arrangement that he is ushering in. How do the people participate in that? Well, Jesus says, by believing in him. So verse 13, everyone who drinks this water, that is the ordinary water in the well, everyone who drinks that water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the work of Jesus ushers in a new water, a spiritual water, a work of the Spirit which can affect the cleansing that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant could not. The cleansing ushers in not just new people but a new temple as well. God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. There's a new relationship with God. Uh, they are the, uh, the first fruits of the new universe, the new world. And that work is anchored in the atoning death of Jesus. So these chapters in John are really about that shift from the old to the new. They're all about showing how Jesus is the one who brings about that cleansing, which, which never happened in the Old Testament. God tried to cleanse them, but it didn't happen. And they wouldn't be cleansed until God's wrath against them was taken away decisively once and for all in the death of Jesus. And through that death the way has been made open for us to receive the Spirit of God and the new life which comes through the Spirit of God. I tried to cleanse you, God says, but you would not be cleansed. Well, I don't know uh, about you but maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel as though you know, you've, you've tried to cleanse yourself uh, and you're, you're, not, you're no cleaner than you were the other day. Maybe you feel like that pot, like that oven, you know, which no matter how hard you scrub, it just never seems to come clean. Maybe you've disciplined yourself with all kinds of great schemes and great strategies to try and make yourself a better person. And yet at the end of the day, you're still the same. You're still the same old person with the same old wrong desires and the same old wrong attitudes, the same old misplaced hopes. What's the remedy? God says flee to Jesus. Whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed the water that I can give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the reminder again this morning that your anger against the corruption of sin the corruption in us the corruption that we've brought into your world thank you for the reminder Lord that your anger against that is so severe and Lord it's terrible to think of the consequences of that, both in Israel's history and the consequences of that in terms of eternity separated from you and under your wrath. But Lord, thank you that you persevere with your people and with the world that you have created. Thank you Lord that you haven't just said it's too unclean and given up and gone home. Lord thank you that you are so committed to cleansing people and making them new that you sent your own son into our world to suffer the penalty of our sins so that we might be made anew through the spirit of Christ. Lord, forgive us if we think that we can change ourselves through our own efforts, through punishing ourselves, through disciplining ourselves. Help us to trust that it's only in Jesus Christ that we can ever be forgiven and only in Jesus Christ that we can ever be changed and cleansed from what we once were. Lord, we pray for those in our world who don't know you. Lord, we ask that the great message of the Gospel might go out, Lord, even from our lips, from our mouths, from our contact with them. Lord, we pray that you might draw many to yourself, that they too might share in the new creation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.